Good evening and welcome back to the QB Spotlight Podcast. I am Eric Henry and I'm joined by always as our resident G5 quarterback guru, quarterback expert, and, uh, you know, kind of jack of all trades when it comes to quarterbacks in general, my man Steve Hamner. Steve, how's it going? Man, all, all is good here, Eric. The uh, little bittersweet bowl game starting to die down, but uh, at least we got a few more bowl games left and we can kind of dig into some of these uh, bowl games and quarterback play. How's all with you and, and how's the weather in Tampa right now? You know what, man? It was a little bit chilly last night, and I know we're going for a little bit of a cold spell, quote-unquote cold spell. For those of you listening in other parts of the country, I apologize ahead of time because I know what we consider a cold spell here is the 50s. But uh, <laughs> um, all in all, you know, we'll be all right. You know, uh, it won't be too long before we're back out at the beach come February 1st. So for those of you listening in the Midwest and Northeast, uh, I apologize. Yeah, well, I can't wait to get back. Uh, the, the weather in Houston is surprisingly cold. I woke up one morning and uh, this week and it was 36 degrees. So had me missing Florida, but I'll be back soon enough. So, All right, so we'll go ahead and jump into it. And before we do, really quick, just want to say thank you for listening. Those of you guys who have checked out our first few episodes, we're trying to grow this thing. So just be patient with us. We are all growing here together. So uh, thank you for listening and thank you for coming back. We're going to go ahead and jump in and get started with a quarterback out of the Mountain West in Jordan Love, who had a really good ball game, 30-39, 317, three touchdowns, uh, in a losing effort. But, you know, Steve, just want to let you take it off the top. What are your thoughts on him? Yeah, so I know overall the season for Love wasn't the season that he probably envisioned going into this year, especially with the type of year he had last year and all the hype coming in. But I thought he definitely showed definitely showed this game why he is considered an NFL prospect. I know it wasn't against great competition uh, in Kent State, but you know, like you said, he was thirty or thirty nine, so he, he showed great accuracy, and it was it was probably one of his best games of the year. And he put them in a great cha- great position to win. Um, probably low key one of the best games of the bowl season. It was the, the second bowl game of the year, is a Friday night. Uh, in, in, in Dallas, uh, Fort Worth, actually, or Frisco, to be exact. But I thought it was one of the best games of the year. And, and you know, he, he showed a strong arm, showed an accurate ball. There were a few drops uh, in there that would have made his numbers even better. But good game to go out on top. And for, for players like like Love and some of the guys we'll talk about, bowl games are important because the scouts have – no other games to go to. Like you don't have like an SEC team playing the exact same time Love is playing or, or some of these big schools playing. So the scouts can dedicate their full time to this, uh, which I know they would see, they, they would go back and look at film, uh, you know, during the off season before the draft, but it's a good time to see him live and kind of focus on, on some of these, these guys who are, are playing in these bowl games. So I think while some, um, while some, People can talk about bowl games and say, oh, it doesn't matter for or, for this program or, or you know, it, it's hard for these guys to get pumped up for this type of bowl game. For uh, bowl games in the group of five, it is a big deal, and it's a good time for them to showcase their ability at the next level, especially if it's their last game they're going to be playing. So overall, Love played great. He looked great. He had him in a, in a position to win the game. They obviously did not win, but he showed why he is considered one of the top quarterbacks in the draft. So quick question for you, and I think this can be applicable to all the quarterbacks we'll talk about today, 
or, you know, kind of as you touched on, as you, excuse me, touched on, the group of five quarterbacks in general. What goes into your evaluation process when looking at group of five quarterbacks in relation to the level of competition? So I know me personally, you know, whether we like to admit it or not, we do have kind of a hierarchy in terms of how we view, you know, each group of five conference. So I'm just curious, you know, love, what the, another guy we'll talk about, Cole McDonald. They play in the Mountain West. Um, so just curious how that plays a part in the evaluation process of all these guys. Yeah, it, it definitely plays a, a a role for sure. But when you when you look uh, when 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 you look at when you take a deeper dive in the film and and you see a quarterback that can go through his progressions and can throw in tight coverage in the Mountain West or in the Conference USA or in the Sun Belt, if he if he demonstrates a good arm, he goes through his progressions. He can do that in the SEC or in the Big Twelve. Uh, you, you know, you're either accurate or you're not accurate when it comes to that. So it plays a big role, but that's where, you know, being a box score analyst uh, doesn't, doesn't, come in, doesn't come in handy. You know, it's easy to look at a box score and be like, wow, he's putting up big numbers. But when you go back and look at the film and look at the throws, so even if Love, let's say, went 30 of 50 or 55, but you went back in the film and there are 8 to 10 balls that should have been caught, say, if he was playing at a higher level or he had better competition around him, um, that goes into consideration as well. So not only do you consider the competition that he's playing against, but the competition he could have been, he could be around as well. Say if you put Jordan Love with receivers from LSU, Alabama, uh, whatever it may be, to some of those top receivers, Ohio State, then his numbers would probably skyrocket up. Uh, so I think it goes both ways. It goes against the competition, yes, but you also realize, okay, he's playing around. Uh, the players around him aren't as probably athletic or developed as maybe some of the players in the SEC or Big 12 or Big 10. And that all makes sense. We're going to jump in here into Chris Robinson from Florida Atlantic really quick. And I do want you to touch on the bowl game, but I also want you to consider this uh, as we go on in and take a, uh, our, our look at him. What are your thoughts, not only with the bowl game, but they had a coaching change. We do know that, um, excuse me, I was about to say Lane Taggart there. Uh, Lane Kiffin is gone. Willie Taggart is in. If you look at Willie Taggart's history, he uh, at USF as well as Florida State, he ran what was called the Gulf Coast offense. So it's his version of the West Coast, as you know, he comes from the Stanford kind of tree. The Jim Harbaugh disciple played for uh, Jack Harbaugh at Western Kentucky. And it's, a, it's his own variation on it, which typically lends itself to more athletic players at the quarterback position. Not that Chris Robinson isn't, but he isn't quite, if you look at his track record, you know, the uh, Quentin Flowers type per se. So just quick question here. Uh, I'll let you go ahead and jump into your analysis of Robinson. We also want to spin it forward. What are your thoughts on maybe his potential heading into 2020 with a new quarterback, excuse me, with a, a new head coach and a, a new system? Yeah, great question. I think so as far as as far as uh, the, the topic of the how he played in the bowl game, I think he did exactly what he did the whole year. He took care of the ball. He was efficient, 27 to 37, two touchdowns, 305 yards and let his playmakers make plays. So uh, as far as as that, as that goes, Nothing changed from the whole season. He did what he did, took care of the ball, spinning it, get, give his playmakers a chance, let his playmakers make plays. And as far as the the uh, latter half of the of the question, I think uh, you know Willie Taggart probably has learned from his his quick stay at Florida State. Uh, I, I think Taggart would do a good job. Um, 
making the system fit Robinson as opposed to trying to force Robinson into the system. I, I do think Robinson's probably a pretty decent athlete and probably better than what most people think. If you go back and, and look at some of the films, uh, he, he does a good job moving in the pocket and buying times with his legs. And I, I, I think if he wanted to, he'd be able to uh, rack up some rushing yards as well. But I, I think Taggart will go in there and create the offense around Robinson. And did, did I see, and you'll probably know this, uh, Eric, is the, uh, is the offensive coordinator going to be uh, Clint Trickett? Is that right? Yes, the offensive coordinator will be, <clears throat> excuse me, the offensive coordinator will be Clint Trickett. Sorry about that. So, yeah, so I, I think that's going to help kind of smooth things out, and they have probably already have a relationship. I know he was the tight end coach, I believe, last year, but, you know, played, played quarterback himself and uh, did pretty well at the college level. So, you know, him and – actually, him and Robinson are actually pretty similar, kind of slender guys, can sling it, and athletic enough guys uh, that can move around a skate pocket. So I, I think that goes – that will go that will lend Robinson uh, some, some help and favor. Uh, and I, I think Taggart probably learned from his previous stop – as you want to kind of mold the system to the players as opposed to vice versa. So we're going to go ahead and jump in real quick with Cole McDonald, and I'm going to let you take it away with what you saw in the bowl game, and I'll also leave you with this question. You know, we kind of know the deal with Hawaii quarterbacks, right? You know in that system it goes back off almost 20 years, the June Jones days, with Cole Brennan and Timmy Chang and guys of that nature that they're going to put up numbers. So I just want to ask you, in relation to not only your bowl analysis, but your overall feeling on Cole McDonald, uh, how much does that play a factor in the fact that you do know that the Hawaii system will put up big numbers? Yeah, so as, as far as to, uh, to go with the bowl game, the biggest takeaway from McDonald was he had zero interceptions, and that was the biggest knock on him the whole year and the, the year prior. He would go on spurts, and he would look – almost unstoppable but then at the same time it was, it was like a a uh what is it dr is it dr jekyll and mr hyde uh that's what it was kind of like it. yeah yeah he would get on spurts of touchdowns and then two three straight drives just bad interceptions he was second in the mountain west interceptions if my memory uh serves me correct so that was the biggest thing taking care of the ball and of course they put up points they beat byu in a great game 38 34 get almost 500 yards passing four touchdowns no picks which is the biggest takeaway for me. And so I think that kind of his bowl performance actually kind of piggies off the second question, how much that plays a, 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 the, uh, the, a role in the, uh, the offensive system Hawaii has. And I think you take it with a grain of salt and know, okay, they're going to put up big numbers regardless. Whoever plays quarterback is probably going to throw for three to 350 yards a game average and going to put up a bunch of touchdowns. But can you take care of the ball? And if you can take care of the ball, you're going to be in a situation to win. If you don't take care of the ball, you're going to be in a situation to, to, to lose most likely. And that was McDonald's biggest knock uh, was taking care of the ball. And that's why they had their, their backup uh, Cordario. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. He got some playing time throughout the year and there's still uh, some, some talk that he, you know, he might get more playing time next year, depending if McDonald uh, can take the next step and take care of the ball. But, but McDonald's on, he's one of my favorite quarterbacks to watch. He, he runs that offense uh, awesome when he's on, and he can sling it. So I like McDonald. I hope he takes the next steps, and I hope he continues to grow as a quarterback and continues to to get better and better at taking care of the ball and, and really uh, utilize and optimize his ability. Brady White's going to be our next quarterback, and he's been one of the 
uh, I don't want to say much maligned, but, you know, heavily talked about quarterback at the G5 level only because, and this is something we've talked about in a previous episode, that we know his credentials coming out of high school, you know, big four or five-star recruit, signed with Arizona State, got beat out there, went to Memphis, uh, was a bit of quote-unquote a game manager last year. Looks to be kind of progressing more this year. I, I personally am a fan of Brady White. Uh, I'm going to let you get into your bowl analysis and then also kind of, once again, spin it forward to next year, what you'd like to see from him going forward if he takes that next step. Yeah, Eric, I'm a fan of Brady White, too. And it, it's, it's funny. I don't know if I've ever seen a quarterback throw for over 450 yards but, not, but have no touchdowns through the air. So that was interesting in itself. Uh, but, you know, he, he played against a great Penn State defense, and they still put up, you know, close to 40 points, and they were in the game the entire time. Penn State came away at the very end. But I thought he played a good game. There, there were times that, it, uh, you know, the defense looked a little fast, and the, the arm strength maybe lacked a little bit to make some tough, congested throws. But other times he did a good, a good job of getting DeMonte Coxey the ball, and Coxey was unbelievable if you haven't seen him play. Man, I, I encourage you to check him out. Great receiver uh, from Memphis. So he was a – when Brady White can get coaches the ball and get guys the ball in space, he looks like a good quarterback and he does well. Whenever there's pressure in his face and he's having to make congested throws, that's whenever he can kind of get in trouble and that's when his arm strength can come in, come in question. But at the same time, realizing he was playing against a top defense in the nation and still put up a 450 yards – he did have two picks. One of those picks was kind of a funky pick that turned into a, a pick six, essentially. But the fact he still put up that many yards against a Penn State defense, regardless of arm strength or not, or all the or, or the knocks that he gets uh, on him, I still think he played pretty well against that defense and and, and more did more than hold his own. And I think is a uh, it was an encouraging play to see for him if you're a Memphis fan going uh, going next year, even with losing their head coach to Florida State. I still think you should be encouraged with Brady White. And there was It's interesting, you, you may know this, Eric. There were some questions surrounding if he was even coming back or if he was going to enter the NFL draft. And he didn't commit to either one last time I checked. Are you, by chance, up to date with that? Have you seen anything new? I haven't seen anything new about that, but, you know, maybe this is just my POV. I'd be stunned <laughs> if, uh, if Brady White entered the NFL draft. And I understand that, you know, he lost his – coach and Mike Norvell, but I just don't think, um, and, you know, I, I guess the level of quality of quarterbacks coming into this draft is subjective and it's open for interpretation, but I just don't think that Brady White, in my personal opinion, has done enough to where the, uh, another year at Memphis would do, I think another year at Memphis would do more good for him right. as opposed to just coming out now. So, but to answer your question, I have not seen anything. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I was actually surprised. I was just assuming he was coming back, and I was surprised. I, like, like you said, a, another year of development would be huge for him, especially if Coxie's back, which I haven't seen anything on him. But if he's back, he's going to uh, you know, only help Brady White, uh, especially with this quarterback draft class. Next quarterback draft class is going to be pretty legit too. Uh, but I don't think – if you're Brady White, I don't take that into consideration. I just consider, okay, I probably need another year to develop – and show NFL scouts I can repeat this year again and get better. I think that's what he needs to focus on as opposed to focusing, okay, what quarterbacks are coming out, who's staying, who's not. Uh, but, yeah, I think another year of development would go huge for him. So. so our final quarterback that we'll be talking about in this section will be Dan Ellington of Georgia State. And he's a guy who 
I actually didn't realize how big he is. He actually has decent NFL size. I believe he's about 6'3", 205, 210 pounds. Uh, last year at, at Georgia State, they kind of underachieved. They went 2-10. and 10. So it was definitely interested in, or interesting to see how they would bounce back this year. And he's bounced back pretty well and led the team to a bowl game. So, Steve, I'll let you take it away. What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I'm not sure how big he was, he is, but the biggest thing that he – that stood out to me this whole season was just his toughness and playing on a torn ACL the last few games of the season. Uh, he was one of my favorite – or one of my uh, quarterbacks to watch going into the season. Uh, Georgia State went like 2-10 two and, two and ten last year. and But he played well and showed flashes, and so he was a guy I was real high on in this season. And then, boom, has a great year. Second team all-conference, leads his team to a bowl game. And while he didn't win, and Wyoming dominated the game, and, you know, n- not a great game for, for Ellington. And, especially statistically, he still fought the whole game, played with a torn ACL, uh, had 70 yards rushing. His his opening drive, they went down the field, scored a touchdown. Um, you know, he still had 150 yards passing. And, you know, it was, it was, it was a tough game to watch at times just because I could see him cringe in pain and his knee would buckle and give out, give out on him at, at times. But at the same time, it, it was real cool to watch. Um, real cool to watch him just, you know, kind of suck it up and keep going, which – uh, is extremely tough to do for anyone who has been around football and seen what it's like to have a torn ACL and, or, or, to, or to have a torn ACL and know how painful it is. So I just was happy. I was, was excited to see his toughness and uh, very impressive. And, I, you know, I hope the best for him, whatever, you know, happens down the road or whatever he decides to do. And I know he's a senior playing his last game. I don't know if he has NFL potential or not, uh, but I'll always be, I'll be pulling for him regardless. So. So really quick, before we jump into our next set of quarterbacks, we definitely want to make time to prioritize whatever questions we get from you guys, because once again, you are our audience, and we appreciate you shooting those to us. So we got this one from at Brian Gottfried on Twitter. How graduate transfer QBs have changed the college landscape? I'm assuming he means how have they, but uh, how have graduate transfer quarterbacks changed the college landscape? Provide one-year fix, but stability at the position. Uh, not everyone can do what Oklahoma's done. So I, I, I believe what he's asking is, you know, how have they changed the landscape, maybe in terms of recruiting and things of that nature, uh, that, yes, they will provide a one-year fix, but it's not necessarily a long-term solution, and not everyone can do what Oklahoma's done, which is get back-to-back uh, grad transfers. So, Steve, I'll let you take it away there, and then I'll, I'll throw on some quick thoughts at the end. Yeah, awesome. So I, I think – and I like the the example he used, he used with OU because that's an example of like a, a one stop kind of fix with uh, Jalen Hurts coming in. But besides that, you know, Kyler Murray was there for a few years. Baker Mayfield was there for a few years. You know, they weren't necessarily the one year uh, stop or one year fix type guys. It was kind of just Jalen Hurts. And then if you look at Joe Burrow, fantastic year, one of the probably the best uh, uh, year a quarterback ever had in college. He was there for two years, developed. You got Justin Fields at at Ohio State. He's going to be there for one more year, probably going to the draft next year, but he's going to be there for two years. So I think a lot of these successful grad transfers are more than a one-year stop. If you look at most one-year stops, I don't know how successful a one-year stop has been. Like you look at a, a Kelly Bryant from Clemson to Missouri, um, had stopped at uh, Missouri this year, and I know it wasn't the year he won. He battled injuries and and had, had kind of a tough year. So I think looking at the grand scheme of things, it's all about, like we mentioned, coaching. And if a coach can bring in a grad transfer, 
and mold him to or mold the system to fit the quarterback, then I think it can uh, be successful like we've seen with, with some of these guys. And three of the guys in the college football playoffs are all grad transfers. So uh, I think it's definitely changing the grand scheme of things. It's almost like, you know, an NFL team, am I going to draft a rookie or am I going to go out and get a vet to try to lead me to the Super Bowl or lead me to the playoffs? It's kind of what these college programs are doing now. Do I want to bring in a freshman and develop him for a year, two, three years, or do I want to go get this redshirt junior who has one or two years left? who can put me in a good position to win now. So it comes back to, do you want to win now? Or do you feel like you can win now with the younger guys you have? Or do you need to go out and get a grad transfer? Uh, and so we're already seeing it now with uh, with Colin Hill from Colorado State, following <clears throat> excuse me, following head coach Mike Bobo to South Carolina, who's now their offensive coordinator. Colin Hill is the quarterback of Colorado State, been injured several, several years. He's going to be a senior now, but he transferred to South Carolina to hopefully potentially be, you know, what the question, what the guy who asked the question was, a, a one-step guy. So it's good for college football. It's good for programs if the program is set up the right way to succeed after he is gone. I know you got some good stuff, good stuff on this, Eric. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you kind of piggyback and and jump into it. Yeah, yeah. So I'll jump in really quickly here. Uh, and first off, I have my own thoughts on college athletes and their ability or lack thereof to transfer freely, you know, as someone who uh, transferred in my own collegiate career, uh, you, I think whether you're a student athlete or not, you know, you should have that freedom. And I definitely think that student athletes should have the same freedom that non-student athletes should have. But before I get on that soapbox, I will specify to his question as to graduate transfer quarterbacks. And we have one that we'll talk about a little bit in James Morgan, one that I've seen up close at FIU. When you look at James's situation, and you know I've talked about it on previous podcasts, you can check it in my writing. He was recruited by Dino Babers to play in one system. Dino Babers left. Uh, they hired Mike Jenks, who ran a different system. And it just was a, a square peg in a round hole, right? So think about it. You'd be naive to think that James is the only quarterback in that scenario. You know, we see Mike Norvell leaving. We see, you know, you can count the uh, amount of quarterbacks, excuse me, the amount of coaches who take jobs at different places. And guess what? Their chances are, are on the recruiting trail, bring in quarterbacks. And it's not always a situation where the quarterback who is being recruited ends up with a new coach whose offensive philosophy fits that quarterback skill set. To bring it all the way around here, if you look at James, his first two years at Bowling Green, his numbers look vastly different to the player you saw at FIU. So I think not even necessarily from the aspect of a one-year fix, but from the aspect of, you know, if you're a quarterback and you're like, hey, uh, I've fulfilled my obligations here. I graduated. I have the opportunity to freely transfer without sitting out. Let me go out there and survey the college landscape and see what offense fits me best. What offense, you know, it's kind of like a, a fridge in the NFL, you know, or if you're, it's like, for example, when you're getting drafted, you get drafted to whichever team takes you, right? You're not going to have very many situations like Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray, where Cliff Kingsbury takes that job, has number one overall pick and says, that's the guy who can fit my system. So I, I'm a fan of, you know, no matter whether it's quarterback or any player taking their own destiny to their own hands and saying, I might've been a bad fit in this offense for whatever reason, uh, but let me go ahead and find a system that works for me. And even if it's not that, even if, you know, just for whatever reason you got beat out, you know, look at uh, Justin Fields, or I know he wasn't a graduate transfer, but 
it, maybe it's just a situation where, you know, or even a Brady White, like we talked about, where he got beat up by Manny Wilkins and he found a system, Mike Norvell, who was the offensive coordinator at Arizona State, that worked for him, and you go from there. So that's kind of my perspective on that. Right. No, yeah, I'm I'm with you in that. And um, like I said, I think it's it's up to it's up to the program to make sure that after that grad transfer, or even tra- I know we talked about a few transfers and a few grad transfers. It's up to the program to make sure the pro it's up to the, the the program of the head coach to make sure once that grad transfer does leave, that's it's more than just a, a one stop fix that you have something else in place. So uh, I, I think it's up to the coaching staff and kind of how you recruit to make sure that, you know, when, once the quarterback leaves, he's not leaving the, the team high and dry. You have someone that learned and grew under him and can take the next step. Absolutely. So it kind of, you know, perfect segue here into James Morgan, who played at the Camellia Bowl versus Lane Hatch, which you guys will talk about here, but we'll start with James. We won't go too long on him because obviously as I cover FIU, I'll have plenty of insight on him going forward. And, you know, we'll get a chance to see him, uh, up close and personal at the East West Shrine game, but just quickly, Steve, what were your uh, your thoughts on him at the bowl game? You know, 28 or excuse me, 22 or 38 for 312. That obviously was one of his better outings of the year, especially since he's been healthy. The two interceptions got to take with a grain of salt. One of them was just at the end trying to make a play for his team uh, in the comeback, and I see that's even in your notes where it says better game than the stats say. So let me not cut too much into your analysis here. I'll let you have at it. No, Eric, again, and I'll just touch on him briefly, and then. Uh, I'll be interested to see kind of your thoughts on, on uh, Hatcher for Arkansas State. We can get into him. But Morgan definitely, his, his, if you looked at the box score, you would say, okay, it's fairly mediocre, 22 to 38, 312, a touchdown, and two picks. But he had a much he played much better than the, than, the, than the stats say and the box score says. Uh, uh, the, the reason that they were in the game was because of James Morgan and James Morgan throwing NFL throw after NFL throw. I mean – there, there was one, I forget who was thrown to, but it was a, a seam route and it was a perfect throw between the safety and the corner uh, right in the in the back of the end zone on a line route to uh, uh, the, the receiver's name forgets me, Eric. I'm sure you'll correct me. Should have, um, been, should have been Austin Maloney. Right. Who, who was having a heck, probably his best game of his career at FIU, or at least this season. Um, but yeah, there was NFL throw after NFL throw. There are a few throw, catch, uh, throws that should have been caught that weren't, uh, which is not some of the box courts say. So if you turn on the film, you would be impressed with James Morgan, regardless of the po- box score of this game. Uh, so better game than the stats say, and, and uh, we'll get into him more throughout the offseason, and and you know we'll, we'll we'll dive into him for the uh, for the draft and whatnot. But uh, I kind of want to get into Hatcher, Eric. What, what do you have on Hatcher? I knew you were at the game, and you're able to talk to some people and uh, kind of get some info and on him and, and whatnot. Yeah, so Lane Hatcher, and obviously he's a young guy, you know, a redshirt freshman, began his career at the University of Alabama, was recruited by Blake Anderson coming out of high school, but, you know, chose the big offer. A lot of kids do that where, you know, no disrespect to Arkansas State, but you line up Alabama and Arkansas State, and you say, hey, I'm going to go to, you know, the big school. Come to find out just wasn't the best fit, and the relationship was still there with Blake Anderson, so he transferred back. But in talking to some of the people there who are close to the program, I think one of the things they're looking to see is how he'll fare with a full year in the system. Uh, there were some people who felt that Logan Bonner could have put up similar numbers should he have been healthy the entire year. I believe Logan Bonner broke his thumb, which led to Lane Hatcher putting up the numbers. But also the second thing, and this is, you know, uh, some of the other things are speculation. Here's what I'll get into seeing it firsthand. Omar Bayless is the real deal. 
you know, he is, and once again, you can talk about whether it's the G5 level or not, but as a wide receiver, you know, I asked FIU head coach Butch Davis and some of the players this postgame, how frustrating is it to play against a player who you know just on any given play can break the game open? And, you know, obviously the emotions were raw. You had seniors who lost their final game, and Coach Davis lost the last game of the year. So, you know, they were a little frustrated at the at, – uh, not necessarily frustrated at the question, but didn't necessarily provide too much insight. But that's one of those things that was clear out there is that, you know, it, you think you have the team backed up. You know, FIU thinks they have Arkansas State backed up in the third and third team, third and long, whatever. And you just throw a ball to Omar Bayless, and he makes a play, right? So how much does that benefit Elaine Hatcher? Mm-hmm. Well, time will tell. I mean, obviously that entire system. And if you look at Blake Anderson's system, come from the time he's at North Carolina, he's done wonders with a lot of quarterbacks. So uh, I'm not saying that I'm down on Lane Hatcher by such an imagination. I just think that it's early and time will tell. But, you know, uh, curious your thoughts as well, because there's no doubt that Omar Bayless is a stud. Yeah. And th- th- that's the exact same thing I saw watching Hatcher this year is he's young and he has room to develop, but at the same time, you know, he's done what he's needed to do. But according to this, but, you know, going back to this game, you know, he threw for almost 400 yards, and a lot of those yards were in chunk plays, you know, like throwing it up to Omar Bayless, who FIU actually did a pretty good job covering him. I know if you looked at the box score, you wouldn't think that, but a lot of these catches were congested catches. Bayless just making a play. Bayless just being better than the other guy, and FIU probably has – one of the better pass defenses in, in Conference USA and maybe even the group of five. But Omar Bayless would put up these numbers, I'm convinced, at most any other school. And so it obviously helps having Omar Bayless. And Arkansas State had two other guys that were, you know, not Bayless's level, but are probably still NFL caliber receivers. So I think that helps Lane Hatcher a ton. I'm looking forward to seeing the competition between Lane Hatcher and Logan Bonner, assuming Bonner is going back and not transferring. You, you never know these days. Uh, but, you know, Hatcher had a great year. I'm looking forward to see him building upon this year. And I thought the game kind of summed up his entire year. Uh, work on some he, – he was fairly accurate throughout the year, but uh, he relied on the big plays. And so I think that, yeah, the, the, the game, the year, great year. I think he was the MVP of the game. Was he not, Eric? No, Omar Bayless was. Omar Bayless was. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, but still almost four almost four hundred yards, four touchdowns, only one reception. So I think if he can if he can continue to develop and and find a way to not just rely on chunk plays, that will be his biggest step or biggest improvement to look forward to uh in the next uh season. So really quick, a point you made about his accuracy and how well the FIU pass defense performed. I think you have to look at, and once again, I kind of hesitated because you don't want to necessarily hold it against the kid because, you know, the conditions there, I mean, you saw the game. It was rainy. Um, you're, you're playing against a team that you're not necessarily the most familiar with from a different conference. But Lane Hatcher went 14 of 35 in the first half. So that just goes to show you that when you talk about how many of those yards came on chunk plays, it was only really a matter. And once again, I'm not saying that, uh, I'm not saying this to be critical. I'm just saying it to give an honest evaluation that the kid went 14 to 35. His one touchdown in the first half was to Omar Bayless. So when you come back in the second half and you just say, hey, I got to get it to my main guy. And uh, that's really what kind of carried Arkansas State through there. So just want to kind of put the finishing touches on that one as we go ahead and transition into UCF quarterback Dylan Gabriel. This is another game that you and I had a chance to put 
our eyes on in person, and we had a chance to actually catch up during the game. But uh, Dylan Gabriel in the Gasparilla Bowl, 14-24 for 260, two TDs. Uh, your thoughts on UCF's quarterback? And to once again spin it forward, what are you looking for from him in year two? Because he was kind of a – I don't want to say an unexpected starter, but we all know that, you know, the injury happened to Mackenzie Millman. We're hoping the best in his recovery. But they brought in Brandon Wimbush, who was expected to potentially push for – no, uh, not necessarily push for playing time, but be the starter. And Wimbush just didn't win the job. He was beat out. So uh, your thoughts on the bowl game and what necessarily are you looking for for him with a full off season as the, you know, presumptive starter heading into year two? Yeah, real quick, Eric, did, did Wimbush start the season as a starter or did Gabriel just, did he beat him out in the very beginning? Do, do you know off the top of your head? They were in a rotation, but <laughs> – if you look at it, Dylan Gabriel really got – I mean, they, their first game was a drubbing, I believe, 55-0 to Florida A&M, and okay. Dylan Gabriel just looked really good there, and uh, he kind of took it from there. So Okay. Okay. And and, and Mac, he, he had an ankle injury going into the season, correct? So that kind of eliminated him from competition? Correct. Correct. Okay, right. And so, uh, yeah, back to, to Gabriel and the, the bowl game uh, playing Marshall, and they, they almost you know scored 50 points. But I thought Marshall's – defense played fairly well because a lot of those points came off Marshall had four turnovers in the first quarter I believe uh if not the first quarter the first half and UCF capitalized off all of them if 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 not all of them three of them off the top of my head I can remember uh but UCF didn't need Gabriel to to win the game he struggled at first he missed a few throws but like you said ended 14 and 24 260 yards and it was raining most of the game uh, off and on until maybe the end of the third quarter. And by that time, UCF already had a big lead. Uh, UCF's offensive line, for the most part, was, was dominating the, the defensive line of, of Marshall, even though Marshall was playing hard and uh, you know the defense kept them in the game. But UCF ultimately just needed to, to run the ball and just tire Marshall's defense out to win the game. So uh, it was fun watching uh, from the field level, at least a few rows back. And you could see he's got a quick release, and, and he, he, he's just such a natural thrower, which you either have it or you don't. Uh, the biggest thing moving forward with him is to see, you know, a second year in the system. You know, he's not a freshman coming in. He's the expected starter. He's got a whole offseason to see, okay, can he take that next step and become truly dominant and dominant in every game that he plays? Because I think for the most part, he, he had a great year. He was dominant at times, but the games they lost – you know, I think he had seven interceptions of the season and all the interceptions came on games that they lost. So I think it's just taking the next step and being truly dominant in every game, especially in conference and, you know, taking advantage of the offseason. I think he's one of the guys that's really going to benefit from having a full offseason now that he is the expected starter going into next season. Really quick follow up here because I just want to ask you this. Um, do you think – I think uh, he gets a lot of comparisons to Mackenzie Milton, and obviously because of the size and the fact that they're both Hawaiians. Mm-hmm. What similarities do you see between the two? I think the biggest difference that I see is that Dylan isn't as athletic and, and not to say that Mackenzie Milton was Michael Vick by any stretch of the imagination or mm-hmm. a more current example, Lamar Jackson, but he did have a little bit more of a breakaway threat in the open field where Dylan definitely seems to scramble to run. Uh, first off, do you believe that's correct? And secondly, I'll let you kind of – uh, pick apart the comparisons or differences differences between the two players. So, so real quick, you said that that you think you feel like McKenzie is the better athlete and runs more, and Gabriel more kind of scrambles to buy time to throw. Is that right? Correct. 
Okay, perfect. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you in that. McKil- Milton is definitely the better athlete, I feel like. Uh, but I think Gabriel is probably the better just natural thrower. And so he's definitely looking to extend the play so he can put it downfield. Milton would extend the play. If he sees a hole, he goes ahead and takes it and runs it. Uh, not to say Milton wasn't a good thrower by any means because he was an accurate quarterback. and he's, fant- he's I hope he comes back. He's a fantastic quarterback. But I think those are probably the differences. But they are similar in the fact that they are guys that probably got slightly overlooked. I know Gabriel was a, had some pretty big offers, but they got slightly overlooked because of their size. But they're both guys who make others around them better. And they have that – I hate to be cliche, but that quote-unquote you know, it factor um, – where you know that that the teammates see them, they have they have confidence in them. They know, okay, we're down, we're gonna be okay. I think I even referenced this on the the last podcast. Whenever UCF got down to Pittsburgh, uh, kind of big at the beginning of the game, UCF UCF was able to come back and had a chance to win that game. They ended up losing them by a point, I think, uh, at the very end. But uh, Gabriel threw three picks, had a rough game, bounced back though. The teammates never kind of lost confidence in him. So I think their biggest differences would be. I don't know if it's a big difference, but Milton probably looks to run a bit more where Gabriel wants to buy time in the pocket. But they're very similar in the fact that they make others around them better and they are good distributors of the football, which ultimately is what you want in a quarterback. So as we go ahead and transition into our final quarterback here, uh, I, I just think that when we're talking about Isaiah Green from Marshall, he's someone who I've been – you know, critical of, because I think that he's immensely talented, but that talent hasn't exactly transitioned into um, on-the-field success. He's a guy who you thought, all right, he's a true, or excuse me, a redshirt freshman last year, and you think he's going to have the uh, the growing pains as he finally earned the job. He beat out uh, Alex Thomason and uh, had a chance to, you know, have some success, led the team into a Gasparilla Bowl victory last year. You're thinking this year he's going to take the next step and make that jump. And it looked to me as if he may have regressed. I'll let you go and go through the bowl game, and then I want to leave you time for just your last analysis of what you see of him and what you really want to see from him going forward throughout the offseason. Because I don't think there's any doubt that he's a talented player, but at times, uh, especially in the bowl game, you know, he just looked lost out there. And, and the one thing you don't want to have from a quarterback is when their confidence is shot, and even so much to the point that Alex Thomason did come in and rotate uh, with Isaiah Green in the Gasparillo game loss. Yeah, to your point, I do think Green is immensely talented, but at the same time, the inconsistencies that plagued him through the whole season, again, plagued him in the bowl game. And to his defense, the the, the weather, it was raining off and on for the first few quarters. Uh, He did look off, but being down, you know, a few rows from the field, there was something going on with his forearm or elbow. Uh, The trainers were looking at it. And when he missed those few series, uh, it's because the trainers were looking at it. He literally couldn't hold on to the ball. So something was going on and watching him throw when he, once he got put back in the game, balls were, were fluttering and he didn't have the zip on the ball that Isaiah Green you know, normally has. Uh, so something was going on with that in his defense. I don't know if he hits, if he, if he hit someone when he was throwing or if it's just something, you know, some nerve thing happened, but the ball just wasn't coming out right after that. Uh, and I was surprised they didn't leave Thompson in because he actually did drive them down the field a few times and put them in a position to score. So I think Isaiah Green, and you know we'll get into him later in the offseason. We'll go through each conference uh, and break down each quarterback in each conference, in each quarterback room. But I think he 
in all of Conference USA, probably has the most to gain from the offseason, the most to go back and look at film, clean up what he needs to clean up. Uh, you know, whether it's it's whether it's looking at more film, whether it's getting out with, getting with his receivers more, whether it's a mechanical flaw, whatever it may be, he has the whole offseason to say, okay, I've had two years that were very similar to each other. There wasn't a ton of improvement. I showed flashes. I've showed glimpses of being the next great Marshall quarterback, but I just haven't taken the full step yet. So I, I think out of all the quarterbacks and at least Conference USA, he probably has the most to gain from this offseason, and uh, he has time to figure it out and, and get better. So um, I know it wasn't the season that, that they wanted and it wasn't the game that he wanted, but he does have the offseason, and I still – I'm still an Isaiah Green fan. I'm still rooting for him. I still think he's a chance to figure it out and, and be the next guy at Marshall. All right. So that'll wrap it up for the quarterbacks we have on this week's podcast. Once again, thank you for listening. We greatly appreciate it. You can find the podcast on iTunes. You can find me on Twitter at Eric C. Henry underscore. You can find the podcast at QB Spotlight on Twitter. And feel free to DM us questions. We always are looking for that listener feedback, and we want to go ahead and, you know, this really is your show. You know, we're just the guys, you know, putting the uh, the lyrics of the soundtrack, but, you know, this is your show. So please feel free to DM us. Give us your feedback. It is always welcome. And we'll look forward to the next couple of weeks. We have some things brewing in the uh, in the future for you. We're going to have a couple of guests throughout the offseason. Steve and I will be at the East-West Shrine game. So we'll get a chance to see a couple G5 quarterbacks there as well. And uh, like I said, we're going to do some top five lists. You know, we're going to have plenty of content throughout season. So don't forget about us. You know, keep checking for the, keep checking for us week in and week out, and we will be here. Once again, thank you for listening, and always watch those G5 quarterbacks.